0: to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com.
2: Hey Daniel, have physicists gotten any better at naming
0: their experiments? Well, let's check in. Uh, Here's a paper by the... ASCAP rotation measure and polarization investigation team also known as armpit
2: <laughs> I don't know what, what the best part of that is is the
0: ASCAP or the armpit <laughs> uh, there's also the background imaging of cosmic extragalactic polarization or bicep Ooh, all right, a, a muscly acronym. <laughs> well, if you're not into the aggressive ones, then you won't like the Balloon Born Large Aperture Submillimeter Telescope or BLAST. Ooh, nice. Although technically that one should be BLAST,
2: right? <laughs> Balloon Born. You guys need more, you know, positive, upbeat, sciencey
0: names. Hmm. Well, then what do you think of the project called Super Huge Interferometric Telescope? Or S H I T (laughs) Sounds like a crappy title. (laughs) What does it study? Dark matter?
2: Hi, I'm Jorge. I'm a cartoonist and the creator of Ph.D. Comics.
0: Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I'm definitely not an astronomer. Why not, Daniel? Not a
2: fan of the stars?
0: I love the stars and I love the mysteries of the universe. And I am a professor in the physics and astronomy department. So I sometimes get emails that address me as an astronomer. And I wonder what the real astronomers in my department would think about that. Oh Well, it's an interesting
2: distinction, right? It's called physics and astronomy. Is astronomy not part of physics?
0: You have hit on an existential question for astronomers that I see them (laughs) struggling with every single day. (laughs) Really?
2: They don't? uh, Wow. They don't consider themselves physicists?
0: I hesitate to speak for the astronomers out there, but I definitely know that they feel like a different community. You know, it's a different set of skills, a different set of questions, a different set of ideas, and also like a different set of classes that astronomy students and physics students take. Interesting.
2: But fundamentally, you were both trying to study how things work out there in the universe, right?
0: Yeah, but I guess all scientists are, right? From that point of view, chemists are physicists, biologists are physicists. (laughs) But our physicist is chemist. <laughs> Only physical chemists.
2: Welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge explain the universe, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: In which we believe everybody's a physicist, even the chemists and the biologists, and maybe even the sociologists, because we all want to understand how the universe works. We want to apply our tools, the eyeballs that are in our head and the eyeballs that we can build to answer the deepest questions about the nature of the universe. What is out there on those other planets surrounding those other weird stars in those other swirling galaxies? And what can it tell us? about the nature of the universe we live in where it came from and how it will all end
2: yeah it is a swirly universe full of amazing facts and incredible objects out there doing incredible things that we just want to know more about
0: Every time we look out into the universe, we discover something new and weird because the universe is stranger than fiction. When you think you've understood something and you point your telescope at it just to sort of double check, you find something bizarre like the Fermi bubbles or astrophysical jets or neutron stars or pulsars or any other sort of weird surprise that nature has in store for us.
2: Yeah, those all sound like basketball teams, Daniel. (laughs) Is there like an intramural physics department?
0: League. That's right. you got to be able to dunk to get on the astrophysical jets team. (laughs) Yeah. No, there's not a whole lot of dunking going on in the physics league. i got to be honest. Only donuts and coffee. (laughs) Yeah, more sort of like Twitter dunking than actual physics dunking. But that's
2: right. We all want to know. We're all scientists in a way. Everyone has curiosity and questions about the universe. And just asking the questions sort of uh, kind of qualifies you as a scientist, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, everybody out there is doing science. If you're asking questions about the universe, remember that science is not some weird institution in a tall building somewhere. It's just a bunch of people asking questions about how the universe works and deciding to dedicate their lives to answering one particular question about the universe. So if you have a question that's burning deep inside you about the way the universe works, then maybe you can help push forward the envelope of human knowledge.
2: Yeah, maybe like maybe your department should just be called... The science department, right? <laughs> or I guess you're all, you know, a science part of being human. So maybe it should just be
0: the human department? The department. That the sounds department, like a John Grisham yeah. novel about science department gone bad.
2: <laughs> Daniel, you could be the John Grisham of physics. <laughs> you could write thriller novels about science conspiracies.
0: We don't tenure anyone. We just take 10 years to chew them up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
2: That's the uh the... Tagline for the for your debut novel. (laughs) That's
0: right. Netflix. Write to me, please. We joke, but that's a little bit the history of science, right? It all started out as philosophy. And then when a question becomes sort of well enough formed for people to do experiments, it buds off into its own area of science. And then it splits further and further into sub areas. I joke with my wife a lot because while the physics department is the biggest department on our campus and on many campuses, that's only because there are like nine different biology departments. So all in all, there's like 10 times as many biologists as physicists on campus. Mm, if only they knew
2: that you could put this, all the names in one department title, <laughs> you know, like physics and astronomy.
0: Mm, Yeah, exactly.
2: Or I guess, you know, we're all part of the universe. So really, it should just be the universe department or maybe like (laughs) the university.
0: (gasps) Is that where that name comes from? I have no idea actually where the word university comes from. (laughs) Maybe it's an acronym. (laughs) (laughs)
2: What does it stand for? (laughs) It stands for a university (laughs) name. The recursive title
0: internally versus. I ran out of steam halfway through. Yeah,
2: extraneous um, resources, research, (laughs) science, and engineering.
0: Bam. (laughs) We almost got there. We almost got there.
2: But it is a pretty wonderful universe full of things to think about and to wonder about, including all of the amazing uh, light and information that's out there for us to see.
0: Exactly. While so much of the universe is incredible and beautiful just in the visible light that our eyes can see, we also know that the universe looks quite different in other kinds of light. In light where the wavelengths are too long for our eyes to see, radio and infrared, and also in very high energy photons that are above our visible spectrum in the ultraviolet and deep into the X-ray.
2: Yeah, because humans have a sort of a very limited view of what we can see out there with light. And it's almost like the universe isn't just there for us. It's doing all kinds of things in other parts of the light
0: spectrum. Just the same way your doctor can see very different things about your body using X-rays, which pass through all the soft tissue and reveal the location of the bones, than they can using visible light just by looking on the outside. Astronomers can also X-ray the universe. By looking at the X-ray photons that arrive here on Earth. Yeah. Do they have special like X-ray glasses? Like the kind (laughs) you can order from the back of comic books? You want to see through the clothes of astronomers? Is that what's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you won't like what you see. (laughs) Probably not. All those donuts. Not a lot of biceps. But we do have very special X-ray eyeballs that we have built. Since our eyeballs can't see X-ray light, we've had to develop special technology to focus, to shape, to detect these X-ray photons and to use them to answer deep questions about what's out there in the universe.
2: Wow. You make it sound like uh, astronomers have like special implants in their eyeballs that give them X-ray vision.
0: That's the future, man, right? Step one is build a big device that weighs like a ton and sits outside your body. And eventually you miniaturize it and implant it right in the brain. Well, step one is to get your own department. (laughs) And then you can order that kind of stuff. That's the goal. I just want the department of Daniel.
2: (laughs) There you go. And your subject matter is just uh, yourself.
0: (laughs) Whatever I want. Maybe actually the rest of the department wants me to have my own department. I'm going to get kicked out. You could be the chair of your own uh, department. (laughs) You could have just a chair and be the chair. There should be some adage like he who has himself as department chair has a fool for a faculty member.
2: But anyways, there is a lot of incredible stuff happening out there in the universe in the x-ray spectrum. It's not just good for looking at your bones or your teeth. Uh, There are also incredible things happening in stars and neutron stars and pulsars out there and even black holes that we could learn if we can see better in this part of the spectrum.
0: Because remember that different parts of the universe are at different temperatures and that something's temperature determines the light it emits. Our sun emits light in the visible spectrum because its surface is around 5,000 kelvin and the earth emits light in the infrared because it is much much cooler and you emit light in the infrared because you are also cooler than the sun but hotter than the earth and things out there that are super duper hot like the surface of neutron stars or jets near black holes they only emit in the x-ray so if you look at some corner of the universe it might seem dark until you turn on your x-ray eyeballs and then all of a sudden it's glowing very brightly Yeah, but I think what's also
2: cool is that, uh, you know, like our sun emits both light in the visible spectrum, but also it it emits x-rays, right? Like you can look up pictures of x-ray,
0: what the sun looks like with x-ray glasses. Yeah, the sun emits all kinds of radiation that our eye can't see from infrared light all the way up to x-rays and even in particles. We talked recently about how you could see the sun in neutrinos if you had neutrino glasses, so while it's true that the sun peaks in the visible spectrum, that's where a lot of its light is emitted, it's not exclusive to the visible spectrum. It also does produce some x-rays and it tells a different story. If you look at a picture of the sun in infrared or visible or x-ray, you see sort of different parts of the sun, different things are going on.
2: Yeah. And so if the more we can see in other parts of the light spectrum, the more we can learn about the universe. And so humans have been building better and better x-ray telescopes.
0: And as part of our mission to be nicer to astronomers, we let them give them really silly names like the NICER telescope, N-I-C-E-R.
2: Yeah, so to the end of the program, we'll be tackling the question. What does the NICER telescope study? Now, Daniel, isn't the answer obvious? Doesn't it study things that uh, the less nice telescopes can study?
0: There's a huge rivalry in astronomy between the NICER telescope and the meaner telescope to see which is better for learning about the universe? Mm, but then there's the
2: third uh, rivalry there with the naughty astronomers. <laughs> Are you nice, naughty, or na- <laughs> nasty? Or mean? You said mean,
0: right? The meaner telescope, yeah, exactly. We know who's getting the Christmas presents from Santa, but who's getting the goods about the universe? Ooh. No, there's nothing nice or mean about the nicer telescope. It's just a ridiculous acronym. It stands for Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer. Mm,
2: they pull that R at the from the end of explorer to make it nicer. Why not just call it the Nice Telescope? <laughs> Why did they have to um, pull up the R from the
0: from the end there? I have no idea. The Nice Telescope sounds pretty good, right? But I guess they wanted to oomph you need to win a grant proposal these days, you know. Not just nice, nicer. Oh, I see.
2: It's like 2.0. It's like Nice 2.0. Next generation of nice telescopes.
0: <laughs> I also like how they skipped the star. They're just like, let's just not include star in our acronym. I mean, it really should be like Nicer. <laughs> now I see why they skipped the star.
2: <laughs> well, I guess they want to leave room so that the next one could be the nicest telescope.
0: <laughs> then where do they go from there? You know, double nice, double nicest, <laughs> uber nice. They go for the Mother Teresa telescope. I guess they haven't named themselves on a corner the way the ground-based telescopes have. You know, they've got an extremely large, ultra-large, absurdly large telescope.
2: Is, is that for real? Is there an absurdly large telescope? Official name?
0: No, I'm joking. The actual title of it is called the Overwhelmingly Large Telescope. And that's a real title of a that's real That's a real title? That no, that is overwhelmingly uh, crazy. The biggest telescope that's actually going to be built is called Extremely Large. Overwhelmingly Large was a little overwhelmingly large, and so it wasn't actually funded. Mm, It was overwhelmingly rejected. (laughs) I was overwhelmingly excited about it, but we could learn a huge (laughs) amount about the universe. But anyway. They were underwhelmed. (laughs) It's certainly underfunded.
2: But uh, this is a new telescope, sort of relatively new in the last couple of years uh, that's out there studying the x-rays that are coming to us from other parts of the universe so we can study amazing things. And we were wondering how many people had uh, heard of this telescope and what it's studying. So Daniel went out there into the wilds of the internet to ask people the question, what do you think the nicer
0: telescope studies? And I'm continuously indebted to those of you who are willing to volunteer to answer these questions and give us a sense for what people know and what they are curious about. If you'd like to participate, please write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. Everybody's welcome. Here's what people had to say. My guess on what NICER telescope study stands
2: for, or the acronym NICER, is Nebula Interstellar Clinical
0: Euphoric Research. Where I think we study the actual beauty of nebulas through a telescope and its effect on psychedelic trips, clothing patterns, and obsession among humans. Well, this is uh, my favorite subject: uh, neutron stars. So, nicer will study neutron stars. This is what I have until now. Not know how it will work and uh, when it will uh, be on, but um, can't wait uh, to find out more.
1: I have no idea. The NICER telescope studies how nice things are, or does it study ice? Like, mm, the N stands for something, I don't know, and then ice, like, does it? Is it some telescope that's going to find more water on Mars or other moons of the solar system, or exoplanets or i don't know yeah i'll go with that the nicer telescope studies ice on other celestial bodies
2: nicer well that's gotta be some acronym that's good for funding so how about nearly impossibly cool electromagnetic radiation
0: i have no idea i'm not gonna make up some guess the acronym nope never heard of it
2: All right, I'm surprised nobody said nice things.
0: I like the person who said it studies how nice things are. (laughs) Like you can measure the niceness of astrophysical objects. Like, oh, that black hole looks so nice. Can you measure that? Are there physical units for that? For nicety?
2: <laughs> nicety. It's measured in Oz. Oz. <laughs> but uh, it is a, sort of an interesting telescope to talk about and lots of fascinating exploration that it's doing. And so, Daniel, maybe step us through this uh, again. What, what does NICER stand for?
0: So NICER stands for, again, neutron star interior Composition Explorer, which tells you already a little bit about its mission. It's designed to understand the interior of neutron star. We call this thing a telescope, but if you saw a picture of this thing, you wouldn't think that's a telescope.
2: Right. I have a picture of here in front of me and it looks like a refrigerator, basically, (laughs) like a
0: box, like a refrigerator box. It looks more like a particle physics detector because it kind of is. It sits right on the boundary between the kind of devices that astronomers built, like classical telescopes, and those devices that particle physicists build, which basically always look like the Borg ship.
2: Yeah. And this one is kind of, it looks like a cube and it has a frame and it's got some like a grid on one side. So it, it, it does sort of look like an air conditioning unit that you would see
0: sticking out of a window. (laughs) It does look like an air conditioning unit, and it's basically just a box with a bunch of tubes in it. And the reason it's so different from the kind of telescope you imagine when you think about Hubble or when you go to your astronomy night at your nearby university is because x-rays are very, very different from visible light in how they interact with matter. So you need a very different kind of system to like gather the light and to bend it and to focus it because x-rays mostly just go through stuff. Like x-rays would go right through Hubble.
2: Mm, I see. So even if you had a lens, the x-rays would just go through the glass. They wouldn't bend necessarily.
0: That's right. X-rays, when it hit an object sort of head on that way, the way you might hit a lens, they would just penetrate through because they have very high frequency. And remember that while air and glass seem transparent to us in the visible light, different things are transparent or opaque to x-rays. And so while your body is mostly transparent to x-rays, which is why you can use it to take a picture of your insides, the air is mostly opaque to x-rays. Like our atmosphere blocks almost all x-rays, which is why all the x-ray telescopes have to be like on balloons or, on, or in space. That's why this one is attached to the International Space Station. And so you can't use typical optics to gather and focus x-rays for that reason. Mm, interesting. But can it focus at all or is it
2: are there any moving parts to it or is it just a box with little sensors in it
0: it's mostly a box with collimating sensors so you have these tubes and the x-ray hits one of the tubes and at the end of the tube is a little detector that tells you i got an x-ray and the idea is that these are collimators and so you can sort of point this thing in one direction and that limits the focus so you're not just getting x-rays from the whole universe onto the back plane which is where your detectors are you have like you know, a bunch of tubes, so you can only look sort of in one direction. So that's one aspect of these tubes. They're collimators. They restrict your field of view so you know what you're looking at. Mm, They're they're literally
2: sort of like looking through a tube,
0: kind of, you know,
2: like a cardboard tube. If you look through it, it limits you to only look at one thing in front of you.
0: Yeah, and that's the way your eye works also, right? The reason that our eyes are inset inside our heads and behind a little hole is so you can tell sort of where the light came from based on where it hits the back of your eye, rather than just having light sensitive cells on the surface where you could just tell that there is light or there isn't light. And so by having these tubes in front of your X-ray detectors, you can tell when the X-ray hits the detector at the back of the tube, where it came from. And it's a little bit better than that because the tubes also do a very small amount of focusing. Oh yeah? What do you mean? Well, it's hard to focus x-rays when they hit straight on, but you can do like grazing focusing. If an x-ray comes in at a very high angle to some surfaces, to some kinds of materials, they will bounce off at a slightly different angle. So they have these really weird kind of, they call them lenses, but they're nothing like what you would recognize. They have these very special shapes. They're called paraboloids and hyperboloids. And they're designed so the x-ray comes in at a very high angle and then gets bent very slightly towards your detector. So it's sort of like the tube is larger on one side and smaller on the other. And it just sort of like tapers a little bit to gather the x-rays down to the bottom. Mm, So it does have like a focusing
2: lens. It's just not made out of glass.
0: It's not made out of glass. This thing is made out of 24 concentric shells of aluminum that are coated in gold and the gold has the right properties to sort of change the angle of the x-rays just a little bit. Remember, these are very, very high energy photons, so it's very hard to bend them at all.
2: Sounds expensive.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they have 56 of these tubes and on the back plane they have silicon detectors that can detect these x-rays so when x-ray smashes into it it like releases an electron that's in the silicon wafer and then that can get picked up by a circuitry so it's basically just like a digital camera on the back plane that's sensitive to x-rays that are focused onto it by these very gradually tapering tubes
2: and so th- these tubes are kind of in a box and this box is sort of like attached the, to the outside of the International Space Station?
0: Yeah, it's got like a little arm and it's stuck to the space station and they can turn it so they can point it at different things like, oh, look at this star look at that star. And it's maintained by the astronauts. And it, was this done recently? It's, it's sort of in the last few years, right? Yeah, it was installed in 2017. So the space station's been up there for decades, right? But they keep adding to the science mission. It's pretty cool to have a facility in space where you can install new stuff and you can have people maintain it and control it. And so this is been up there for the last five years and it's done a lot of really interesting science already
2: yeah and it's sort of named with the word neutron star in its name but it, it actually sort of studies a, a wider range of x-rays right what are called soft x-rays
0: yeah we have a variety of x-ray telescopes you might have heard of Chandra and other space-based telescopes that are capable of seeing the sky in x-rays. But to study neutron stars, we're interested in a very particular kind of x-ray, sort of on the less energetic side of the typical x-ray spectrum from around 200 electron volts up to about 12,000 electron volts. And this is what we call soft x-rays. Soft just meaning a little bit lower energy than like hard x-rays. Mm, I see, because the hard X rays
2: have not been approved
0: by. <laughs> Definitely not for the nicer telescope.
2: That's that's for the naughty telescope.
0: That's the NC-17 telescope.
2: Still to be launched.
0: <laughs> Maybe that's where the R comes from. I <laughs> mean, that's where they kept the R at the end. But it does show us some very dramatic and incredible things going on in the universe. Yeah, and it's not just neutron stars. There's all kinds
2: of stuff out there that uh, gives off x-rays that reveal amazing things about the universe. So let's get into the things that nicer is studying. But first, let's take a quick break.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust eBay Motors has it and with eBay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time or your money back plus at these prices well you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusion supply you know that feeling after you've done a deep spring clean of your house when you realize wow for details. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable.
2: All right, we're talking about the NICER telescope, the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer, which stands for <laughs> Nice
0: Earth, sort of. sort of. You got to say the ER at the end of it. You can't just say explorer. You got to say explorer. <laughs> so the R gets in the acronym. <laughs> I guess there are no no laws or
2: rules about acronyms, right? You can pretty much uh, do whatever you want. You can grab letters, ignore letters, right? Why not?
0: If there are any rules, astronomy is busy breaking them. There are some really ridiculous acronyms out there. Oh, uh, they're rebels. In the astronomy community. That's why they need their own department. I feel like there's this trend in science Every time you come up with a new idea, it needs a name and an acronym so you can like brand it your cool new idea. Mm, what What happened to naming it after yourself?
2: Maybe you're encouraged to do both. Like make an act like cham could be a <laughs> pretty cool, heterogenic, uh, amazing um moniker. convolutional
0: high altitude mechanic.
2: <laughs> there you go. I am a mechanical engineer. Yeah. All right. So uh, this is a telescope out there, uh, up there attached to the International Space Station. And it's made out of uh, little tubes that uh, can collect X-rays from specific points in space. And it's been studying all kinds of things, including neutron stars. So Daniel, what is
0: a neutron star? A neutron star is a super fascinating object. It's basically the remnant of a massive supergiant star that collapsed. Remember that stars burn for a long time because they have very hot interiors and they have the fuel needed to perform fusion like to squeeze hydrogen together into helium and then squeeze that helium into something else and then squeeze that into something else and they get heavier and heavier and heavier where the byproducts of fusion produce the byproducts of the next round of fusion until they no longer can, until they're making iron, which cools the star down and causes it to collapse. So eventually gravity wins its battle against fusion and collapses the star. And depending on the mass of the original lump of stuff you started with, you can get a black hole if you have enough stuff or you could get a neutron star, which is just this really hot, very dense clump of matter left over at the core of a star after it has collapsed.
2: Yeah, it's, it's sort of like one half step up from a black hole, right? Like we, we had a whole episode about neutron stars and they're just kind of like what happens when light is just almost compressed enough to make a black hole.
0: Mm-hmm. There are various ways that you can resist the pull of gravity. Right? A burning star resists it by producing all this energy that puffs out its outer layers and prevents it from collapsing further. Once gravity has overcome that, there's like another threshold, which is this electron degeneracy threshold. The electrons don't want to get squeezed together as closely as gravity wants to squeeze them, and they resist. But if you add more mass to it, it can overcome even that and then produce a black hole. It's like the last holdout. It's like matter's last line of defense.
2: Yeah. And but do they inevitably become black holes or can they, you know, resist becoming a black hole forever?
0: Neutron stars, we think, are stable. They can resist becoming a black hole unless they gather more mass. There's a maximum mass to the neutron stars, we think. But that's not something we understand very well. Like we have pretty basic questions about neutron stars, like how much mass is in a neutron star? How big can they get or how wide are they? We know that neutron stars are super duper dense. They have like one and a half times the mass of our sun squeezed into an object with a radius of like 15 kilometers. But we don't really know what the boundaries are. Like, can you get a two solar mass neutron star or does it collapse into a black hole? Mm,
2: Interesting. I guess maybe a question is, if they are sort of close to a black hole and they're not fusing anymore, meaning exploding and giving of light. How do we like know where they are? How do we find them? And have we actually seen one?
0: We have seen neutron stars, but you're right. They are hard to see because they don't glow in the visible. But the incredible gravity means incredible temperatures and incredible pressures. And under those conditions, they tend to produce x-rays. So the surface of a neutron star has this crust, this really incredibly intense environment. And as that crust like rubs and bumps and has star quakes, It produces flashes of light, x-rays, that we can see with our fancy eyeballs on the International Space Station.
2: Interesting. It has like a shiny coat to it, you know, like most stars emit light sort of from the insides. But this one you were saying uh, neutron stars emit light and x-rays on the surface.
0: Yeah, that's the prevailing model, although we don't really understand what's going on with neutron stars. One of the core questions is like, what is the state of matter and in the inside of neutron stars? It's a situation that's so hot and so dense that all four forces come into play. I mean, usually gravity, which is the weakest force, can be mostly ignored when you're talking about like forces between quarks. But inside a neutron star, there's so much mass that gravity is as powerful as the strong force. And you need to take into account all the different forces if you can understand the nature of what's going on in there. You know, we think about like the neutron has three quarks and they're hanging out. They got gluons bound together. It's a happy little thing. It can last for a long time or protons are very similar. But now take a bunch of those and squeeze them all together. It's like you got this ocean of quarks that are floating around, creating this weird new kind of thing. You could almost even think of it as like one enormous particle.
2: Right, because you're saying it's like they're squeezed so much that all of their usual bonds don't work anymore, right? like the bonds that keep electrons and protons and quarks together, all of that kind of turns into a giant
0: soup of stuff. Yeah, the same forces are at play, right? You still have the strong force and the weak force, but their typical patterns. The way that quarks form into a proton and make a stable little package, those patterns are no longer relevant because you have all these other forces on the outside pulling them apart. And so we don't have an understanding of what's going on inside that. That's why nicer has the word interior composition. In it Because we want to really understand what's going on on the inside of the neutron star. It's a very strange environment and not something that we typically see. And so we don't have a lot of ways to probe it. We can't create those conditions here on Earth.
2: Right. And they sort of maybe even start to get into the up to the boundary of, of our knowledge about physics. Right. Like that's when you start to question things like how much is uh, are things quantum and how much are they special relativity?
0: Yeah, describing it as on the boundary of what we understand is probably generous to our understanding. This is well beyond something that we can model. we try to use the equations of general relativity to describe what's going on on the inside of the star. But you're right, we know there are probably quantum effects there. And so that's why it's a great way to test these things to say, like, is it possible to understand the impact of quantum gravity and the gravitational interactions between particles? Are those necessary to understand what's going on inside there or do you just need a really really big computer and so we're trying all sorts of different kind of things to like build up models of what might be going on in the inside of the neutron star unfortunately we can't see the inside of the neutron star we can only see the outside of it but those x-rays that are produced by the outside give us clues about what might be going on on the inside right really
2: you just want to know if it's nice on the inside as well <laughs> as the outside <laughs>
0: Is it a candy coating around like a sour center or is there like chocolate inside? Should it be on the naughty list or on the nice list? One thing we really want to understand about the inside of neutron stars is like, what is the pressure? What is the density? What is the speed of sound on the inside of a neutron star? Because in very, very dense environments, the speed of sound can be up to like the speed of light. Remember early on in our universe when things were very, very dense, we think the speed of sound was about half of the speed of light imagine that and so in these environments we just don't know very basic things about that like how does a neutron star ring after there's a star quake on its surface you know how do those sound waves penetrate and bounce around on the inside
2: wow like what happens if you like ring a neutron star kind of
0: determine and a lot of these questions about the pressures and the densities determine what masses and radii are allowed for a neutron star Like if you have one model of the pressure and the density and how all these things are interacting, then you have a relationship between the mass and the radius. Imagine a graph of like mass versus radius of neutron stars. You can't have neutron stars just like anywhere in that graph. There's like a line through that plane where neutron stars are allowed. They always fall along some line. That line is determined by the relationship between the pressure and the density and all that stuff going on inside the neutron star. So, if we just knew, like, what are the masses of these neutron stars? What are their radii? We could know a lot about what was going on on the inside.
2: Right. Because I guess what you're saying is that, you know, when you look out into the night sky, with just your eyes, you see stars shining with your eyeball. But if you had X-ray glasses, you would
0: also see some of these sources of X-rays that you you know or you think are neutron stars. That we're pretty sure are neutron stars. Yeah. We can see the stuff around them that suggests there used to be a super giant star there. And then we can look for X-rays at the core and that suggests that a neutron star is there.
2: And I guess the physics that, that are going on inside of them are so extreme that we don't know it A lot about them. And so that's why you want to look at them with a telescope like this one.
0: Yeah. And if we could measure what are the masses of all these neutron stars, what are the radii of all the neutron stars, then we would have an idea of what might be going on inside them because those two are very closely connected. You want to take like a survey. Like a survey. Like if you're wondering how do the bones work inside an elephant? Like how do you even hold that thing up? If you had a sense for like how big can elephants get, it would give you a clue as to like, well, how did that bone system work? And so we want to know, like, how big can neutron stars get? What neutron masses are allowed and not allowed? Now give us an idea of, like, the composition, the various layers of the neutron star.
2: Yeah, wow! Well, you, now you just rope zoology into physics <laughs> as well.
0: They're all physicists in the end, right? The <laughs> physics of elephants. Next, I'll be building an elephant collider. That'd be fun.
2: Oh, boy, you'll get in trouble with the animal rights activists.
0: I'll just call it the nicer collider, and it'll be fine. <laughs>
2: no. You call it the uh, animal cruelty collider, maybe. (laughs) I don't think they'll put you on the nice list with Santa, Daniel.
0: Non-intentional collisions of elephants research. There you go. Nicer. Well, uh, neutron stars
2: are just one thing that the nicer telescope can study. It can also study other incredible
0: uh, stars out there in the universe, right? That's right. And that's because neutron stars are so weird. They have like various categories of neutron stars that do even weirder things than just like exist at crazy high temperature and pressure, these weird blobs of matter. We have stars like pulsars, which are a special kind of spinning neutron star. Mm, Interesting. Like a neutron
2: star can do, can have different flavors to it. Like they can do different things.
0: We talked about on the podcast once the really weirdest stars in the universe. And some of the stars in that category are things like magnetars and pulsars. So magnetars are neutron stars with incredibly intense magnetic fields. You know, we have a magnetic field on Earth because of the swirling currents inside the Earth that we think generate that magnetic field and our star has a magnetic field. But those are nothing compared to the magnetic fields generated by these magnetars, which are really incredible. Mm, it's
2: because kind of like a, a neutron star is spinning, right? And sort of, sort of like when you have a magnet spinning, it generates crazy magnetic
0: fields. Yeah, that's exactly right. And magnetars, we think that the magnetic field comes from the spinning and and that it powers this incredible electromagnetic radiation, the X-rays and the gamma rays that come from this magnetic field coupled with the spinning. And these magnetic fields are just really incredibly intense. There can be like a hundred million times stronger than any man-made magnet, like a trillion times more powerful than our magnetic field here on Earth.
2: And so you're
0: hoping that maybe with a
2: telescope like this, you could um, study those magnetic fields? Would you be able to see like images of the magnetic field or get a sense of
0: what they're doing? What we want to do with NICER is try to understand the source of these magnetic fields and how it affects the crust on the magnetic field. Recently, NICER saw a magnetar and was able to watch a starquake in action. There are these hot spots on the surface of the magnetar, as like the bits of crust are rubbing against each other or breaking and falling inside down into the like crazy neutron star lava on in the internal parts. Each of those hot spots emits X-rays. But this thing is spinning right so sometimes those hot spots go around the back of the star and so you can no longer see the x-rays so the x-rays are sort of periodic and they're periodic because the star is spinning and so as they come into view you see a spike from x-rays they watched this star quake in action they saw this neutron star with like three huge spikes and then two of the spikes sort of merged together into one bigger spike so you could get a sense for like what was going on on the surface of this incredible object super far away wow well, first of all, I just like the word starquake. It's a pretty <laughs> co- <laughs> cool idea.
2: And uh, second, um, I guess we can get images of the these stars with our telescope. Like can we actually see, see these magnetic fields or are we just getting like one train of X-ray photons and then inferring kind of what's happening from that?
0: Yeah, we do not have great spatial resolution. Remember, the structure of this telescope is not like a great optical telescope the way Hubble is. It just got like 56 different channels. And so what we're getting is like is just as you said, it's like a train of x-rays and we see the energies go up and down. We can measure the energy of the x-rays as they come in. So at any given time slice, you have like a spectrum in the range that nicer can see and you can see peaks at various wavelengths. And then those peaks go up and down in time as the magnetar spins. And so really, we just have like a single train of x-rays from each star. We don't have great spatial resolution. Right. I guess with 56
2: tubes, it's like a seven by eight pixel image kind of. Yeah. It's like it's eight bit. It's (laughs) retro.
0: Yeah, they usually use a Game Boy to visualize these things. You could,
2: right? (laughs) It would be cutting edge in the 80s.
0: Yeah, so there's a little bit of imagination required. We can't see these surfaces, but we can tell that there are hot spots there. And so we can infer like the physics of what might be going on in this starquake.
2: All right. Well, Nicer is also studying other kinds of neutron stars and uh, other kinds of stars and incredible things happening out there in space. And so let's get into them. But first, let's take another quick break.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust. eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable.
2: All right, we're talking about NICER, the telescope. It's I think it's the nicest telescope out there. Is there any
0: reason not to call it the nicest? Well, the folks I know that work on the NICER telescope, they're some of the nicer people I know. <laughs> some of the nicer, but they're not the nicest. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's for the next project, right? We'll remove some of the meaner people in the collaboration and then we'll upgrade to the nicest collaboration. You purify the nicest. <laughs> we'll purge. Oh exactly. my goodness. <laughs> Boy,
2: you're not getting on the nice list, Daniel. Anyway. <laughs>
0: No, it's a wonderful community of people who work on x-rays and they've been very nice to me.
2: Well, uh, we talked about how this telescope is going to study neutron stars and magnetars, but it's also going to study pulsars, which are pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, pulsars are another variety of neutron stars. They're ones with this magnetic field accelerates charged particles and basically creates a beam that goes up the top and the bottom of this star. So imagine like a huge just like flashlight being shown out from the top of the star and the bottom of the star out into the universe. It comes because this thing is spinning and it's got this magnetic field and particles that are released from the surface get like swept up in this magnetic field and shot out. Sort of like the inverse of the northern lights. You know how particles from the sun come to the earth and get funneled up to the north and the south poles by our magnetic field. If we were emitting radiation from the surface, it would also get funneled up to the north and south poles and shot out in terms of two beams.
2: Yeah, it sort of looks like uh, like a lighthouse, right? Like when you think of a traditional lighthouse that um, it's like a, you know, something at the top of a tower that shines basically two spotlights uh, in opposite directions. That's kind of what a pulsar is
0: hmm And if those spotlights don't actually align with the spinning of the star itself, right, if they're slightly out of alignment, then where the spotlight points changes as the star spins, right? If you've a flashlight straight up and then you spun, you wouldn't change what you're shining your flashlight at. But if your flashlight is pointed a little bit down or sideways, then as you spin, you're going to be hitting a different spot in the sky. That's why a pulsar pulses because it's sweeping across the universe and only when its beam hits the earth do we see it. So when we look up at the sky, we see these pulsars blinking very regularly as they whip around and that beam passes the earth.
2: Right, kind of like a lighthouse, right? Like uh, if you're far away from a lighthouse, it looks like it's blinking. But once you get up close, you can see it's actually like a... A flashlight that's spinning
0: uh, around yeah and these are some of the most powerful accelerators in the universe power the particles that come from these things are just really crazy high energies it's amazing so wh- what do we know about how they work we don't know a lot about them because we don't know a lot about neutron stars and these are like weird intense neutron stars that we understand even less but we can try to use nicer to study them because sometimes these beam of particles doesn't make it all the way to earth Sometimes it gets bent by like a wiggle in the magnetic field and comes back to the star itself and can create hotspots. So it like sort of shoots the beam and it gets bent back around and like zaps itself.
2: Wait, what? What do you mean? Like it bends the light or it bends uh, like a stream of particles?
0: It bends like this stream of particles. I mean, pulsars emit in lots of different frequencies, can also shoot uh, electrons and all sorts of other particles. Lots of things are swept up in these magnetic fields. Mm. But ultimately it creates, like when it loops, you're saying like
2: this beam of particles shoots up. Comes around, hits the star again, and then emits a bunch of
0: X rays. Yeah, that's what we can see. We see those X rays from hot spots on the surface of these pulsars that are created by this beam, like bending back around and hitting the surface, creating those hot spots. And so we can try to map those hot spots and try to understand like what's going on on this crazy pulsar.
2: Right. Well, I guess what's interesting is that I mean that, this is what you think is going on, right? Like we never, we don't actually have a picture of one of these pulsars up close to see these this bending. And so this is all just kind of a little bit from our models of what we think
0: is going on. There's a lot of inferring from models. Yeah, we have a computer model for what we think is going on and that predicts a certain distribution of x-rays. And then we go up there and we say, what? This thing is emitting something very different from any of our models. Can we come up with a model that explains it? And then can we try to apply that model to other neutron stars and how well does it work? So, you know, we're really at the very beginning of an era of neutron star astronomy, trying to understand what's going on inside these things. Like the fact that these pulsars sometimes shoot up particles that make it to Earth and sometimes they bend back around to hit the pulsar itself means that the magnetic field is probably much more complicated than just like having two poles. It's like knotted and tangled in some weird way. Sort of like the way that the surface of our sun emits these coronal mass ejections, which then sometimes bend back around and hit the sun. You get these loops of plasma.
2: Right, right. But those we can see kind of with the naked eye or telescopes. But um, for the neutron stars, we're just kind of imagining it for now until we get a nicest telescope.
0: Until we send a fleet of cartoonists over there to draw what's going on (laughs) on the surface of these stars. That's a lot cheaper than a couple of billion dollar telescope. (laughs) But NICER would actually help you on a mission into deep space because NICER can see x-rays from these pulsars. And you remember once we talked about how to navigate deep space. And as you move away from like NASA's deep space network, you have to figure out another way to figure out like which star you're near and where you are in the galaxy. And because pulsars are so regular and each one has its own like fingerprint, then by measuring the pulses from pulsars, you can use x-rays as a like way to infer where you are in the galaxy. And NICER can actually do that. They have a system on it called Sextant, which is another crazy acronym, which can do this sort of x-ray navigation. They've like actually tried it. They can use pulsars to figure out where we are in the galaxy. Uh, it's like you're using the
2: blinking lights of the universe to guide you th- through space.
0: Yeah, exactly. Astrophysical lighthouses for real. It's not just a metaphor.
2: I'll make sure to bring one on my next uh, space voyage. <laughs> but it's interesting you're saying almost like its own field, right? Or like, you know, you're an astronomer, you're, you're studying neutron stars.
0: I'm not saying they're ready to have their own department yet, but absolutely there's a whole field of neutron star astronomy. People who just study neutron stars. All the way from people writing computer codes to model what's going on inside them, to people designing telescopes to look at them, to people analyzing the data, people writing machine learning codes to try to understand what we can learn about the inside of neutron stars based on the patterns of x-rays. It's a huge field.
2: And I guess astro means stars, so would they technically be called... Neutron astronomers or or nas, astronomers?
0: new astronomers, yeah.
2: <laughs> or na- nasty stro- astronomers? Mm. <laughs> nice astronomers, maybe. Nice, there you go. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> they're the nicest. Well, but uh, also this telescope uh, doesn't just study neutron stars; it could also study the kind of the opposite of a star, which is a black hole.
0: Remember that functionally, it's an X-ray telescope. We built it to see X-rays that come from neutron stars in this particular region, but it's not limited to just studying neutron stars. It can also see anything else in the universe that generates X-rays in this frequency range. And one of those things are black holes. Remember that black holes, while they're black and they're these incredible pinpoints of space where light cannot escape, the region around the black hole is a very intense environment with a huge amount of gravity and very high temperatures. And before things fall into the event horizon, they get super duper hot and can emit crazy amounts of light, including x-rays.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the only thing we can see about black holes, right? Is this stuff falling into it?
0: Yeah. And that stuff, these pockets of gas and dust that are swirling around before they fall in, they can get crazy hot. We're talking about like a billion Celsius. That's like 1.8 billion degrees Fahrenheit. It's just really incredible the velocity of these particles. So when they're at these temperatures, they tend to emit in the very high frequency range, meaning X-rays. And we're very curious about the nature of these particles, what's going on just before they fall into the black holes. Because remember, not all the particles in the accretion disk actually make it into the black holes. Black holes sometimes have very powerful magnetic fields, just like magnetars. Sometimes these particles don't end up in the black hole. They get swept up by the magnetic field and shot out the top or the bottom, creating these huge astrophysical jets, things that are much, much bigger than the black hole itself.
2: Mm. And you need something like nice, sir, um, to study the X rays because there could be things happening around a black hole that you can't see with, a, with sort of visible light, right? With the
0: naked eye. Yeah, because these things are so hot, they don't really emit in the visible light. The X ray is the right spectrum to see them in because of their incredible temperature. And so this lets us do things like look right at the edge of a black hole's event horizon and image the particles that are just about to fall in or just about to get shot out the top or the bottom into those jets. So they've done this recently. They've looked at like the black hole corona, this environment just past the edge of the event horizon where the particles are like about to fall in or about to get shot out into the jets. And they've done this before for like super massive black holes at the hearts of galaxies, but they had never done one for a stellar mass black hole, like a black hole that's just the collapse of a normal star. Interesting. But uh, I guess don't things near
2: the surface of a black hole kind of get stretched out, right? Like don't things kind of get redshifted and wouldn't that make it
0: hard to see with an X-ray telescope? Good point. In the vicinity of a black hole, there is gravitational redshifting. So things do get moved down to lower and lower frequencies. So that means that if these things are still X rays, after they got redshifted, they must have been ridiculously high frequency. But that's also why we have a big spectrum of observing devices like the James Webb telescope that just went up. It's going to be looking in the infrared to look specifically at things that have been massively redshifted because they're old or because they're moving really, really fast, or because they went through some gravitational redshift like the vicinity of a black hole.
2: Right, it's almost like you need like several different glasses to study what's happening in these extreme environments, right? Like you need a regular uh, magnifying glass, you need an x-ray glass, you need an infrared pair of glasses.
0: Yeah, just the same way we use various senses to understand the nature of the world around you. If you only had vision or if you only had hearing, you might have a very different sense of the world that you are embedded in. And so we want as many different senses as possible to understand the universe and all of its different colors and sounds. Right. It's sort of like 3D glasses, right? Like you want one eyeball to see one
2: thing, and you want the other eyeball to see something else. And then that gives you a more uh, complete picture of what's going
0: on. Mm-hmm. Because we're trapped here on Earth. We can't go and visit those stars very effectively. And so we want to take advantage of as much information as we can that makes its way here to Earth. And it would be crazy to ignore a whole channel of information in the X-ray that's telling us so many things about a hidden part of the universe yeah and I guess it's thanks
2: to um, telescopes like these that we can that we even know there's stuff going on in those other
0: uh, frequencies yeah and we have a whole generation of new devices going up along a broad set of these wavelengths and each one is going to tell us a different story about what's going on out there and then we try to piece that together into a whole model of the universe and that's in the end what physics is right we take what we see out there in the universe and try to stitch it together into one grand story that explains everything that describes the heart of neutron stars and the flapping of butterfly wings and the collisions of elephants.
2: (laughs) You just lost me there. (laughs) You you had me at the collision of stars with uh,
0: butterflies? (laughs) Yeah, you know, the vortices created by butterfly wings are not something we understand very well. There's a whole group of people studying, like, how do insects fly? It's really pretty complicated fluid dynamics. I see. And you need x-rays for that? (laughs) You don't need x-rays for that. But it's just an example of the kind of picture we're trying to build about the universe. Physics is not just about neutron stars. It's about understanding how the universe works and stitching together everything we see into one holistic picture of the fundamental nature of the universe. Oh, I see. Got it. Got it. You're trying to co-op the other departments. Yes, it's all physics in the end. That's where I'm going.
2: <laughs> yeah. You want all the funding <laughs> until you get sucked up by the math department and then you're in
0: trouble. They're not even relevant to reality, man. They exist in the realms of what might be. they're not so nice they're not as
2: nice as my astronomers
0: I don't know if math has good acronyms or not I haven't dug into that
2: (laughs) I think well they only deal with uh, letters so I guess uh, any equation can be an acronym
0: yeah maybe their acronyms are like all Greek and Hebrew letters yeah,
2: they don't even uh, care about uh, words. <laughs> all right. Well, again, it's uh, pretty cool to think about all the things that humans are doing to look at the universe around us. You know, it's sort of screaming at us, shining us, uh, raining upon us with information about what's going on and how it works at the molecular, at the quantum level. And all we need are like the right pair of glasses, the right tools
0: to kind of see and get this information. And we need folks Who are so passionate, so interested, so curious about one question about the universe that they spend their career designing things like crazy X-ray telescopes that can help us understand the nature of the heart of neutron stars.
2: And they also need help with their acronyms. So if you're good (laughs) at that also, join the team. Just make sure you're nice about it. (laughs) All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.
0: In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com.
1: If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and
0: me, Simone Boyce.